I think I'm out because I've never done jury service. Don't you have to be an upstanding citizen? Maybe that's why I've never been called because I'm not considered an upstanding citizen. And yet I don't have a criminal record, which appears to be the benchmark for jury service. Are you a decent person? I don't know. Have you ever been in prison? No. Then jury service for you. And yet I still don't get invited. It's just feeling personal at this point. I imagine it would be fun though. Except in your case not. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello! Welcome to 2023. I'm not going to say Happy New Year because, well, I think we're all a bit too world-weary and realistic for that. For those of you who celebrated any holidays, festivities or commemorations in December, I hope they went well for you and you're close of kin. I had my friend Laura visiting and we did very little of note. I spent three days shouting at Google Analytics 4, but that's because I worked those days between Christmas and Year and that's my day job. I'm a data analyst by career, self-evidently. This doesn't mean that you can all come at me with all your VOGA queries, by the way. Well, I mean, it does, but there's no guarantee I'll be able to answer them. Yet. Working on that. Which is why I was shouting at GA4 in the first place. But once I get a handle on it, it'll be fine. Might start charging for it, even. Or having it as a free tier on my Patreon. Might as well use my Patreon for something. Something something SEO. Anyway, obviously as someone who started out as a travel blogger, it seems fitting to ask if any of you have made any plans for any trips, home or abroad in 2023 yet, or whether you're, you know, waiting for finances, strikes, pandemics, international conflicts to settle down first. I was looking at a world map last month and I was generally thinking, I don't have any true inspiration here. Everywhere I want to go is too far away or too expensive and nothing in my budget is calling to me. That doesn't mean I'm going to take a weekend city break in Luton, though, because, you know, I have limits. One thing has been sort of booked, though. The same Laura has told me I'm going away to Malta over Easter. I've been to Malta before and found it to be incredibly chill. I was there six years ago this month, and it did very much, you know, uh, it was did me good to spend a week there and not just pressure myself to do anything while I was there. I always meant to write a podcast, but no, not a podcast, but a blog post about it, or several. Uh, but I never quite got round to it. I micro-blogged on Instagram, but that was it. I mean, I guess it probably does need a podcast episode later in the year. We'll see. As you can tell, I've been a bit lax on podcast episodes recently. I know what I want to do, I just haven't. The plan was to do a lot of catching up over the festive period, and obviously that didn't happen. Because me. But thank you for your patience. I have a couple of interesting episodes lined up, including one on Detroit, one on the Merchant Navy, and one taking inspiration from the Sounds Fake But OK podcast and delving into questions found on Reddit. Which is a lot less fun than diving into a relationship and am I the asshole subreddits. But then, I'm not a lifestyle podcast. Or maybe I am. Who knows? On the other hand, I have finally relaunched my YouTube channel and have been actively posting on it. Well, my VA has been actively posting on my behalf because she's the one who edits the videos. 
Mostly at the moment, I've been dropping identity-based YouTube shorts rather than travel-focused long-form videos. So, if you want to see me dressed in many a weird and wacky outfit and playing up to the camera, go check them out. Longer-form videos will be coming soon. There's a few things in the pipeline that are almost ready to go, so watch, literally, boom, this space. I've also been acting as an accountability buddy for one of my online friends, Kate Frankie. She came to me at the start of the month uh, asking if she wanted, well, basically she said uh, she was going to do the 30-day Yoga with Adrienne project on YouTube, but needed to do it with someone else, otherwise she'd lose heart and inspiration. And I was the first person she thought of. I've dabbled with yoga before, as very long-time listeners may recall, so I was happy to help out. Well, until she informed me she wanted to do it before she started work in the mornings, and she has a commute. Dear listener, 7.30am is far too early for me to be crouching in front of a laptop in my living room going, but my legs don't bend that way. Honestly, sometimes I think yoga practitioners are made of rubber. Also, it's hard for me to keep up with the rapid change of positions at times, as well as my not being quite sure exactly where my limbs are supposed to be, let alone phrases like, bring your navel in. It's hard to judge whether my head is over my heart, and my heart is over my pelvis, if indeed I even know where my pelvis is. Maybe I just don't understand that alien language she's speaking. Maybe it's my dyspraxia. Either way, it's not as fun, or as beneficial, as I really want it to be. Anyway... As some of you know, I spent four days a couple of weeks ago on jury service. Now, I don't know how many of you listening have ever been called for it, and in any case, some of the concepts seem to work differently depending on legal jurisdiction, so I thought it might be interesting to talk about some of that on a podcast episode. Plus, it beats me nattering about Reddit or something. I don't know. Ah, so, it's the first time I've ever been selected for jury service. Well, it's the first time I was ever able to do it, at least. Despite living in Nottinghamshire for 15 years, I had nary a peep out of them. A year and a bit in Glasgow, and I get called twice. Back in mid-December, I received a letter from the court telling me that I'd been selected for jury service. The letter, known as a citation, gives deets on where and when you need to be, plus information on how to decline. You're not allowed to decline unless you already have a valid reason for not being available. We're talking hospital operations, pre-booked holidays, etc. Uh, important work meetings do not count. I'd had a letter once before in the middle of last year, but I was scheduled for selection on the first Monday of my road trip around Ireland. Emailing confirmation of my hotel booking got me out of that one. Fortunately, I'd made a hotel booking. That's what you get when you do road trips with someone with a need to be considerably more organised than me, which is almost, but not quite, everyone, to be fair. Regardless of whether you're declining or not, you need to confirm receipt of the letter online these days. It's a simple process, but you need to remember to do this. Otherwise, they send a follow-up letter. Anyway, so while the letter told me I'd been selected and needed to turn up at the courthouse on Monday the 9th of January, what it also said was that the day before, even if it was a weekend, a selected juror needs to phone a recorded information line for up-to-date info. I somehow remembered to do this. The fine for not acknowledging jury service, not answering, not turning up when called, can be up to £1,000. And while my ADHD is strong enough even to override that, though I did indeed forget to acknowledge the first letter, so they did indeed send me a second one, no surprise there, fortunately I seemed to have been on the ball enough to do the admin on that day. It was a close run thing, I'm not going to lie. Oh, before I forget, the way you're initially eligible for jury service in the UK is by being on the electoral register. Since electoral registrations are different in different parts of the UK, even, this means that someone might be eligible if they live in Scotland, but not if they live in England. Like, you know, if you're a 32-year-old American immigrant. 
Fortunately, I have remembered to take Laura off the electoral register now she's moved back to London. We won't talk about July. So, I called the line and the info said, we'll call you tomorrow with more info, but do not come to the court. The original letter said I needed to be at the court at 9.30 on Monday morning, so that was nice. With hindsight, I'm guessing the letter just hadn't been updated with post-pandemic practices. When chatting with others, uh, it seemed that in the old days you'd had like 200 or so people lurking around the courthouse waiting to see if they were needed or not. That's going to be fun in a pandemic. The phone call came around 1pm. This explained the process of jury selection a bit clearer. Essentially, the names of everyone who had had a letter, roughly 200 people, were to be put in a hat. And if your name was drawn out, you had to turn up the next day at the courthouse. The draw would take place that afternoon. If I was selected, I'd get a phone call before 4.30pm. If I didn't get another call, I'd have to phone the recorded info line after 5pm for an update. This is all sounding very much like a lottery win. Listener, it is not a lottery win. I was called just after 4pm. Now it turns out, taking unavailability into account, the odds of being picked were around 50%. I told you it wasn't a lottery win. And while that seems like a lot of people for a court case... Turns out they were selecting four juries at the same time. So, this meant I had to quickly set my out-of-office on my work computers, message my line manager for clarification about what I needed to record regarding absence. Now, I'm a civil servant, and we have a policy for this. So for me, it was pretty simple. And by pretty simple, I mean I don't actually have to do anything. But it might get complicated for other people. Legally, it's regarded as special leave, and you do get paid for it. Though I'm sure if you work for a dodgy small company in Harrow, they may find ways around it. But it might require you claiming it as expenses, either from the company you work for or from the courts themselves, especially if you're self-employed, as you'd otherwise potentially have a direct loss of earnings. I'd love to imagine the process is simple if you're in receipt of benefits, but somehow I have a suspicion that the DWP may well find an excuse not to acknowledge that. Note that you don't find out what the case is until you get to the courthouse. For all I knew, it could be as simple as someone running off with a packet of cigarettes from a corner shop, or as complicated and in-depth as a gangland killing. On the original Monday lunchtime phone call, it was suggested that my trial may last five days, but they said that that's always seen as, you know, nothing more than indicative. Trials can last as long or as short as they need to. Someone I've spoken to since said they were on a trial that, due to delays with witnesses and the like, it lasted three weeks for no predictable reason. Conversely, there's always the hope that the accused will change their plea to guilty five minutes before the trial's due to start, and you can all go home. As you've probably worked out by now, neither of these things happened. A dress code, by the way, is smart casual. Though the judge and the lawyers dress up in fancy clothing, and yes, the wigs are a thing for, you know, demonstrating who they are more than anything else. It's a, like, a, like a uniform. Jurors have a bit more leeway. Things which are not allowed include football colours, T-shirts with slogans, ripped jeans and sandals. No toes on display, if you please. I mention this only insofar as I know people listening to this pod might have a certain... a view of me, my style, and I want to assure them that, yes, I do have a pair of closed shoes. One, which I bought in a supermarket in the south of France in early autumn 2019 because CERN in Geneva also has that policy. And I've worn them maybe five times since I bought them, the majority of which have been weather-related. Anyway, so I turned up on time at the court and got stamped in, then got sent to what amounted to a waiting room with 17 other people. Turns out most of these would be my co-jurors. When I was stamped in, I was given a number, and this stayed with me for the entirety of the trial. After a bit of a wait, we were all instructed to line up in this numerical order, 
for the first time, but not for the last time, and make our way into the courtroom. The trial didn't start here. Firstly, for maybe 20 minutes, the clerk of the court and the jury manager gave us a brief overview of what's going to happen and what to expect. This was also when they told us more about the details of the case. So there were supposed to be 20 of us, 15 jurors and five substitutes. I mean, there should have been. As it turned out, a couple of would-be jurors hadn't turned up, so two of the substitutes directly took their place. Upon learning of the case and the names of the people involved, we were given the opportunity to say if there was any reason we couldn't go through with it. None of us did, but examples would have been you know, if we'd have known either the defendant or the accuser, or if any of the details of the case would have potentially brought up PTSD-type symptoms or feelings, that sort of thing. Then we were taken to the jury room, which is a large lockable room with a separate toilet, one male, one female, although given that they were identical and designed for one person to use at any one time, I felt the designations were a little pointless, and just waited for the trial to start. We had biscuits. Free biscuits. Something I learned over the subsequent few days is that there were always biscuits. At length, we were called into the courtroom to be sworn in and meet everyone. The remaining three substitute jurors were thanked for turning up but then dismissed and could go home content with the knowledge they'd served the public good without having to actually do anything. Oh yeah, juries in Scotland consist of 15 people rather than the 12 in England and most other places as far as my pop culture knowledge extends. I do not know why this is, but Wikipedia tells me that a 2009 review concluded that 15 was uniquely right. Other places have toyed with the idea of a lower number. Seven is often mentioned as a good number, especially if the trial requires a unanimous decision. 15 is one of the largest in the world, apparently. Swearing in took place en masse and just involved us repeating lines from the judge. You know, I swear by almighty God that I will give a true and honest verdict kind of thing, while holding up our right hand next to the chest. For those who actively believe or not in a God other than the established Christian one, a personal affirmation was available afterwards, but no one took up this offer. Now, one might query whether the oath is valid if you swear on a deity you don't believe in, but honestly, one of the facets of Anglicanism is that majority of people don't actually care. South of the border, Church of England isn't so much a belief as a default. So when the 2021 census in England and Wales revealed that less than half of the people identified as Christian for the first time, this was indicative less of a major shift in belief and more of a realisation amongst people that they could answer a question without being on autopilot. But I waffle. Of course, we're all going to serve justice as best we can. Semi-spoiler alert. This very fact may cause philosophical angst amongst jurors. In Scotland, unlike in England, a jury can reach one of three verdicts. Along with guilty and not guilty, we can also reach not proven, which the best way I can describe it is, we know the bugger's guilty, but we can't prove it. I'll come on to this more later. Anyway, the judge gave us all a bit of a speech about what we're here to do and how we're here to do it, explaining the likely course of the trial, etc. etc. The most important thing is to realise the difference between the judge and the jury. The judge described himself as the judge of the law. He described us as being the judges of the facts. Our role was to listen to all the evidence and weigh it all up. His role was to look after what the law itself said. Now, this means he was unable to guide us to a verdict. We would come to that ourselves. Conversely, we wouldn't be involved with any of the legal points, including things brought up by the lawyers. His overview was, the prosecution was brought by, in the UK's case, the entity known as the Crown, as opposed to a particular individual, on behalf of the accuser. It is the prosecution's job to prove the accusation. This is an important fact and demonstrates a fundamental aspect of the legal service that is both absolutely core to justice and yet also the cause of much frustration in certain types of cases. The accused is innocent until proven guilty. This means that the defence doesn't, in essence, have to do 
anything. The onus is on the Crown, the prosecution, to prove that a crime has been committed, and not on the accused to prove that they didn't do it. This is why the vast majority of witnesses called in court cases are called for the prosecution rather than the defence. The way it pans out is the prosecution calls witnesses, makes a case, in conversation with the prosecution lawyer. The defence lawyer then has a chance to cross-examine, question the witness as they see fit, before the prosecution lawyer has another quick chat with them. Then the next witness is called, and so on, until there are no more witnesses. It is then the turn of the defence lawyer to call witnesses, although there's no legal reason why they have to. Remember, they don't have to prove anything, and they're all to the reversed. Once all the witnesses are called, both lawyers stand in front of the jury and make a closing statement for a while. In our case, it was about 45 minutes each, before the judge sums up and we're sent away to deliberate our verdict. You probably know much of this from court procedural TV shows, but let me tell you, they're not entirely accurate. They don't show nearly enough biscuits. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In his initial statement, the judge also explained what evidence was. A simple thing, you might think, but no. Given that this is a core part of the jury's decision-making, it's important to spend some time detailing what it is and what you can do with it, and importantly, what you can't do with it. In essence, evidence is facts. This could be things like CCTV, photographs, or audio recordings of what people actually said. It could also be witness statements, what people who were there, or thereabouts, gave to the police when questioned in the immediate aftermath. Evidence is not anything that lawyers say, including questions asked and assertions made by them. Evidence is also not hearsay, as in a, well, they told me that X happened, except in the context of witnesses' original statements. In addition, if a witness on the stand contradicts what the same witness said in their statement, the statement takes priority. This actually happened with the first of the prosecution witnesses, in my case, who, for reasons I'm not legally allowed to know at the time, and which I haven't since researched, came in so contradictory to the stand that within the first 20 seconds of being there, the prosecution lawyer reminded them that perjury and contempt of court existed and were both a crime. That said, evidence also applies to things like body language. Although in above example what the witness said on the stand wouldn't necessarily be accepted as evidence, the way they said it would have been, with the caveat that you don't have context about how they usually act. In my case, some of the discussion we had in deliberations was around the apparent contradiction in reported timescales of the incident. As someone with ADHD and associated time blindness, I was more than happy to note to the other jurors that the first witness exhibited certain neurodiverse characteristics and they therefore may be equally as imprecise with time as I am. We were also reminded that we were there only to take the evidence as presented. We couldn't speculate and we absolutely couldn't research anything about the case independently. This obviously included details about the participants. The judge also said what's important with evidence, especially with witnesses, is the combination of credibility and reliability. As jurors, we have to ascertain if the evidence we're provided with was both credible and reliable. It didn't all have to be both. And we could discard our pieces of evidence if they don't fit. But if we concluded that a witness was not credible or reliable as a whole, we could choose to dismiss everything they said. Equally, though, if we had issues with some of it but not all of it, that was fine too. We could mix and match, taking into account all of the evidence holistically. This involved, you know, looking at what matched across witnesses and assess accordingly. One of the most important words was corroboration. Any evidence needed to support or corroborate other evidence. If it didn't, it was effectively worthless and cast doubt on that witness. 
This also means that one set of evidence on its own is not enough to convict. Two or more corroborating sources of evidence are needed, and if we can't find that, we have an obligation to acquit. A witness statement, no matter how credible or reliable, on its own is not enough. In addition, we have to be sure beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence as presented corroborates enough to prove guilt. Again, if we have reasonable doubt, we must acquit. But yet, he told us if it did, if we were certain beyond reasonable doubt, then we had a duty to convict. The bar required to convict is high, but if we cleared it, we have a responsibility to justice to act upon it. Semi-spoiler. Beyond reasonable doubt is a very nebulous, very vague phrase, which everybody interprets differently. I guess it's why juries are so big. We were all given a clipboard with the charge, the defence's affirmation, and an awful lot of blank paper. During the trial, we'd make notes on what we heard, and when it came to deliberation after all of the evidence, this was all we'd have to rely on. We would not be allowed to see things like transcripts of witness statements, etc. Now, it might help to give a layout of the courtroom. All of this is from the point of view of the jury. So, the room is quite large, but the bulk of it is the public benches. These are tiered, behind a raised wall kind of thing, on top of which is a window-like screen. Probably bulletproof. With regards to the court itself, so the jury is sat on one side, parallel to the wall, on a series of chairs contained within a solid wooden panel fence? Box type thing? About waist high? This being Scotland, there's three rows of five chairs of the flip variety like you might find at the front of a bus. The public gallery, I mentioned earlier, is on our left. To the right is a door that leads out into the corridors. We became very familiar with that corridor. Next to the door sits the jury manager, who basically acts as, well, the clues in the name, really. This is who we reported into when we arrived every day, and who makes sure we're ready to enter the court when called for, as well as providing the biscuits. Did I mention the biscuits? The jury look across the court. At the far end is the mesa. This is the person who brings witnesses into court, tells them what to say, etc., and acts as a kind of calming influence should disorder occur. They traditionally would have carried a mace as a symbol of their authority. Between the jury and the mace are the lawyers, who are sat at a large table with paper and laptops and other notes. The prosecution sit one side, in our trial it was the side near as the mace, while the defence sit the other side, which in our case was in front of us. There's two people on either team, the lawyer and the lawyer's aide. On a raised stage to the right of us sits the judge behind a desk, while at the lawyer table, but pretty much directly below the judge, is the clerk of the court. Think of them as the admin manager. Their job is to record proceedings, explain procedures, and clarify questions that we, as the jury, may have surrounding the trial, including points we may raise that would help us come to a verdict. On the left, in front of the screens dividing the public gallery, is the dock. This is again behind a waist-high wooden panelled wall, and in it there are stairs leading down. Uh, this is where the accused sits, in our case between two custody officers. These stairs presumably lead to a holding cell. I did not look. Obviously. The only other thing to mention are two lecterns on either side of the room. One to the left of the jury, the other to the right of the mesa. These are the stands. The one near us was used by the lawyers, while the one on the opposite side was where the witnesses stand to give evidence. Now... With regard to the witnesses, in our trial, for reasons we'll come on to in a short while, the vast majority of them took the stand, as it were, via video link. This was the cause of at least two of our delays. Only two witnesses were in person, and one of them was the accused. As an aside, because the defence doesn't need to prove anything, and because they don't have to call any witnesses, 
The fact that they called the accused himself to the stand might suggest a specific tactic by the defence team. I don't think you're allowed to read anything into that as a juror, since being innocent until proven guilty means not saying anything at all is not, and absolutely cannot, be read in any way to shape your verdict. The defence's affirmation, also known as the special defence, called special only because it's produced beforehand to all parties as opposed to anything else which comes out to the jury only during the trial, is pretty much all that the defence is mandated to provide. The other witness, as I say, was the one who was given a reminder what perjury and contempt of court were within 20 seconds of taking the stand, just to give you some idea of what we as a jury were up against here. Now, for those of you who maybe aren't sure, perjury is lying under oath and contempt of court is a catch-all charge that basically boils down to not following the instructions of the clerk of the court, lawyers or the judge. Unsurprisingly, if on Twitter anyone asks, so what would you be most likely to serve jail time for? I always answer contempt of court because, well, have you met me? With regards to the jury deliberations at the end of the trial, all those notes were made during it we take into the jury room, and without reference to any other material, even mobile phones are banned, we have to discuss all of the evidence and the statements and come to a conclusion as to, you know, whether it all proves beyond reasonable doubt, remember, guilt, or whether there's enough issues that mean we're obliged to acquit. Even the evidence that has been previously given by witnesses is off-limits, and we actually got a little told off by the judge for asking. We're allowed to ask written questions given via the clerk of the court, and then everyone gets called into the courtroom for the judge to answer them. It was slightly embarrassing to go through that for a two-minute spiel by the judge basically saying, I told you at the start you can't do that. In some trials, at this point, the jury is entirely locked away until they reach a verdict, you know, being put up in hotels overnight if necessary. We clearly did not have that luxury. Maybe that's for the gangland murders. We went home on the Thursday night. I went via the Scotia pub just down the road that Laura says is her favourite pub in Glasgow. I missed her that evening, but not as much as on the last day. But that's a brain dump for later. But anyways, we came back on the Friday and just after lunch and the telling off from the judge, we reached a verdict. We'd have reached one sooner, but one of the principles in court is that everything stops for lunch. Between 1pm and 2pm, nothing happens. We had lunch provided free, and was actually pretty nice. It was a pre-chosen deli box meal, like, you know, falafel with couscous or chicken Caesar salad or plowman's lunch, but had the vibe of high-end deli rather than cheap mass canteen stuff. And biscuits, obviously. And sugar-free iron brew. Quelle horreur. Once the jury reaches a verdict, they tell the jury manager, who sends for the clerk of the court. Now, she'd previously asked us to appoint a spokesperson, not me, who would then go on to read the verdict in court with specific wording. Once in court, we'll go through the formal procedure of announcing the verdict, which is then written down by the clerk and repeated back, just to ensure there are no errors that could cause a retrial. Once this is done, the judge gives their final words, including things about the background of the case we weren't legally allowed to know previously, and then we're sent away. And that's pretty much how it feels to be on a jury. The time scales will vary depending on the amount of evidence that's provided, but in general, that's what you're going to expect. Now, Obviously, I can't give you a blow-by-blow account of the trial I was a juror for. That would be unethical, possibly illegal, even though the trial itself has now ended. I can, however, give some non-specific details that I think will be important to know, because this is where I get a bit personal and introspective. If all you're interested in was, what should I expect when called to jury service, which vibes like a good SEO title for a blog post, then thank you for listening. You can fast forward to the end. Ditto if there's a chance that discussion of any kind of personal crime may be triggering for you. This certainly was not a trial of someone running off with a packet of cigarettes from a corner shop. 
It was weird to describe how I felt when I arrived at court on the first day, not really knowing either what I'd get or even if I'd end up taking part. And part of me was still waiting for the accused to change to a guilty plea five minutes before the start of the trial. What I was thinking, though, was that I wanted something interesting. I didn't want to come all that way just to get a street robbery or something, but equally I didn't want a huge murder case that would take me out for several weeks, so a trial of four to five days suited me fine. The subject matter, however... What I got was a rape trial. Well, rape and assault, but not the creepy and pedatory man grabs woman and drags her into a park type case. No, this was a trial that revolved entirely around the concept of consent. The accused said that him and the accuser had consensual sex. The accuser said not only was the sex non-consensual, but that assault and penal penetration had occurred as well. Both the accused and the accuser came from traditionally disadvantaged minority backgrounds. I'm not at liberty to say publicly what backgrounds and disabilities, even though part of the corroboration of evidence hinged on that, but what I would like to say, just for the avoidance of doubt, both parties were involved were white and from the British Isles. I think that's vague enough to be accurate. So this wasn't a case of any, you know, power dynamic other than man versus woman. She was twice his age, but that didn't factor into any of our deliberations. The parties had not met until the day before, so this was the second time that they'd met. The incident occurred in a shed at the bottom of a garden of the flat the accused lived in during an impromptu house party. There was alcohol involved on both sides. Witnesses called included one of the people at the party, who was the first to see the accuser after the incident, and who'd given a statement to police in the days afterwards. The two policemen who'd responded to the original call about the offence, the person who took the accuser's statement, and the medic who'd performed a thorough examination of the accuser in the hospital after she'd given the statement. The accuser did appear on the witness stand, but only on a recorded video link from a few months previously, so while she was cross-examined, it wasn't being done live. I suppose for a case like this, that's a fair call. As I said earlier, aside from the person physically present at the party, all of the other witnesses gave their evidence live on video link, at least one for childcare reasons, and one of the policemen may have been literally on duty at the time, so gave evidence from his police station office during his break. Now, remember what I said earlier, beyond reasonable doubt and innocent until proven guilty. How do you disprove consent if there are no direct witnesses? On the Tuesday lunchtime, I was convinced that the jury would acquit. And in general, this whole trial made me realise why so few rape prosecutions occur. See, innocent until proven guilty. This is a good thing, let me make that perfectly clear. But for instances like this, it means that A, since the burden of proof is on the prosecution and the defence pretty much don't have to do anything, and B, to convict you not only have to ensure all the evidence supports each other, but also that it does so beyond reasonable doubt, it's actually very hard to prove a lack of consent because the default position is the defence telling the truth. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the details of the case and the witness statements. You don't need to know them. And frankly, that would feel a bit intrusive. Suffice to say, a lot of debate was had within the jury about the medical report and the fact that there were two broad timescales of injuries and the medical doctor saying 15 of them are consistent with the time frame, but you can't categorically date a bruise. And the origins of bruises can't be categorically ascertained either. Is that someone grabbing her for assault, or someone grabbing her so she doesn't fall over in the dark because she can't easily tell what she's doing? These are the sort of questions you wrestle with as a jury. From the outside, it always seems easy. You instinctively know if someone's guilty of a crime. But it's not as simple as saying, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck. You have to prove beyond reasonable doubt, I say that a lot because it's important, that it is a duck. Otherwise it might be, but you can't prove it. And if you can't prove it, you have to cast it aside and say, 
not enough of the evidence says it's a duck, so we can't disprove it when it says it's a giraffe. Giraffe's probably the wrong metaphor, given the evidence necessary for that, so let's say pigeon instead. In Scotland, we have, as I say, not proven as a possible verdict. And on the Tuesday morning, I was convinced that's what we, as a whole, would tend towards. It would make sense, a vibe that a crime was probably committed, but not enough of the evidence would lead us, enough of us anyway, to make that leap to guilty. Err on the side of caution, as the judges mandated we do at the very start. No initial presumption of guilt. To be honest, I still had that view on the Friday morning too. One of the things I raised in the deliberations was Occam's razor, the philosophical point that boils down to the most likely outcome is the one that requires the fewest assumptions, unless disproved by direct evidence, in which case simply go to the one with the next fewest assumptions. I found that when thinking about beyond reasonable doubt, this helped, because in effect, the simplest solution that required the fewest assumptions will, by definition, also cause the fewest doubts. My sense was, if the set of actions that required the least assumptions led to a guilty verdict, I'd vote guilty. If it didn't, then I'd vote not proven. It is perhaps surprising, as a whole then, we, the jury, found the accused guilty by a majority verdict of 11 to 4. Four members of the jury decided that it wasn't beyond reasonable doubt that the accused was guilty as charged. Primarily, their concerns were around the medical report. While they accepted there were injuries about the time, they couldn't honestly say those were caused in an assault by the accused. For them, there was enough doubt about that, not enough proof they weren't done earlier or later, say by the victim's not-partner at the time, their words, not mine, or because of, you know, falling over or being helped along. And, yeah, it's just hard to disprove that logically with the evidence available. Juries exist for a reason, evidence exists for a reason, and good feeling is not enough to base a verdict on. So, while in my jury at least most of us could reach that step, some had a much higher personal level of beyond reasonable doubt. I think a different jury would have acquitted, despite having exactly the same evidence and exactly the same debates. And, you know, that's why I thought we'd acquit when we started deliberating, because of how hard the justice system makes proof. I don't know how that thought makes me feel. That despite a jury of 15, it might only take a couple of people to have different criteria, and the verdict ends up being completely different. It's quite a responsibility, and also quite random. How many people have been acquitted when another jury would have found them guilty? How many people have been convicted who otherwise might have walked free? Simply because, in either case, one or two people straddled the line and went one way rather than the other. I don't know what the solution is. I don't think maybe, well, I think maybe there isn't one. But it's a fundamental problem with a fundamental right. I think in general, I think we've got the balance more or less right. I'd rather a guilty person walk free than an innocent person be convicted. Others may have a different view. But what the trial did really reinforce in me is that nothing is ever completely black and white, and that being a juror is actually much more nuanced than TV would lead you to believe. And also, while it's so easy to sit at home and read brief details in a news article about a trial and come to an immediate and good conclusion, for the purposes of justice being served, it's a lot more complicated and difficult for that. And if it were any other way, we'd only be one step from show trials and a perversion of the justice system as a whole. As I say, at the start of the trial, the judge said we had to do what was right. And what he didn't want was for any of us to not sleep at night, having thought we could have said something that might have made a difference. 
For me, enough of the evidence was beyond reasonable doubt that made me feel the accused was guilty, but more of my fellow jurors had disagreed and we'd have acquitted. It would absolutely not be for me to say that they were wrong. I believe I made the right decision, regardless of the overall jury decision, and I'm fully confident every other juror feels the same, regardless of the decision they came to individually. I'm just glad we didn't have to come to unanimous decision, else we'd, you know, still be there now. Due to the nature of the case, the court service offered post-trial counselling, which a couple of the jurors took advantage of. I went to the pub and had a bit of strong beer. I realised that's not a healthy coping mechanism. But, well, on one hand, I pay a therapist £50 every two weeks to brain dump, and on the other, I'm the sort of person who needs time to process things. What I will say, though, as an aside, and a personal insight, this is something I've always known and indeed have referred to on this very podcast. But, oh my, it really hit home on that Friday afternoon. Like, so we wrapped up just after lunch, and so by the time all the admin was finalised, we left the courtroom, shade after 3pm. I walked back towards home and stopped off at one of the pubs, bars, whatever, along the way. Served craft beer on tap, that's all that mattered. Anyway, so I was in there. I wanted to talk to my friends about the trial and about my feelings. I looked at my phone and I realised something. I'd already told most of them what was going on. But at that exact moment, they were all otherwise busy. They were either doing child-centred activities, or they were at work, or they were asleep. It was a two-factor issue. I was feeling very lonely and quite... I don't know, my therapist suggested the word vulnerable, and maybe that's accurate. I'm, I'm happy to continue using the word lonely. But at that moment in the pub, I wanted nothing more than to talk nonsense with a friend. That wasn't possible. I knew it would be so, though. Even on the walk from the court, I'd messaged one of the two WhatsApp groups I'm in to say, I need to decompress, what would you do? And one of them replied, go to the pub with a friend. And I know they meant well. And I know that that would have worked. But it wasn't something that was available to me. And I felt it, you know. It was almost like, this is what you need, but we all know you can't have it. I felt even a little harsh and a little damning at the time, even though I know it wasn't meant that way. Despite it having been in my mind for ages, and even being mentioned several times in passing on this pod, that Friday afternoon I felt very, very alone with the knowledge that I know pretty much nobody in this city by more than the occasional word. And even the social events I have are very much self-contained. They take place entirely within that window, and not a word is spoken between us outside of those times and events. I had some quite strong beer and headed back to my flat. Can't remember what I had to eat. It may have been that night I had a takeaway from the decent fish and chip shop nearby, in which case it was battered sausages and chips. When I went to bed, I still felt empty, I guess. So I did something I hadn't done for maybe even this century. And I grabbed my large teddy bear from the chair in the bedroom and cuddled up to it all night. It just felt... It was exactly what I needed, just something to hold on to, to remind myself that everything was going to be all right. That my reaction was so strong that afternoon and evening took me a little by surprise. The intensity of it, I mean. I guess it's something I need to work on, but I'm not quite sure yet what or how to. Laura found Glasgow small, which is largely because her reference points are London, New York and Hong Kong, which clearly are not. But while the metro area of Glasgow is a shade over a million people, in a way, I can see what she means. I don't find it small, but equally it's certainly true that there's fewer opportunities to find your own communities, because when you're dealing with minorities anyway, the smaller the area, the less chance of finding enough people easily for a lasting group to form. 
The other slight quirk I've noticed is that the groups that do exist mainly meet up in Glasgow's West End, the student area, which is a bit of a trek from where I live, especially on a dark, icy winter evening with temperatures down to minus eight like they were in mid-December. It could, however, be worse. According to data from the 2021 census in England and Wales, 37 people in the borough of Ashfield declared themselves as asexual. I low-key want to arrange a meet-up of all of them in the Regent pub in Kirkby and Ashfield. We'd all fit in without any bother, that's for sure. Oh, for the record, the teddy bear does not have a name. Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time for another adventure beyond the brush. Until then, remember, justice is a dish best served with biscuits. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye for now.